Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, I'm excited today. We're going to go through Matthew chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 11. If you don't have your Bible today, uh, we're going to put it up on the screen behind us so you can follow along on there. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 11, let's do this. Let's do a quick review or recap of what Jesus has been up to in the first 10 chapters, okay? Um, so, so far, what Jesus has done is he's chose disciples from a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, okay? He doesn't go to the educated people. He doesn't go to the scribes. He doesn't go to the Pharisees. He's not going to the temple to say, hey, give me your best, well-studied, well-versed um, leaders in the Jewish community. He's, he says, okay, where are, um, where are the fishermen? They will be good disciples. Where are the tax collectors, the cheats? Let's go find them and call them. He's also spending most of his time teaching around fishing villages rather than going to main cities like Jerusalem. It would be like launching Christianity from Havana, Florida, instead of New York City. Some rural, small country town gets Jesus and the kingdom first before the main city gets it. He's spending his time with poor people, sick people, sinners. He's not spending time with the religious people or the educated people. He's feeding the hungry. He's casting out demons. He's not spending his time trying to raise an army to fight Rome. He's not talking about raising up your swords. He's the rightful king, but he's not challenging the king who's sitting on the throne right now, Herod. He's teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, he's teaching with meekness, he's speaking um, to God like he's a father, and not this far away, distant, strange entity that we can't approach. He's talking about God as this, this father that we should come boldly before. He's showing compassion to people, and basically, this summary up the last 10 chapters, Jesus is doing uh, doing what he's doing in a way that completely shatters all the expectations of anybody who was waiting for a savior up to this point. Up to this point, all of the people in Israel, man, they had, um, they knew that a savior was coming. You read through the Old Testament, you read through the prophecies, they knew that, that, that the king was coming, but when he finally shows up, he doesn't meet any of the expectations that they thought. He's doing the opposite kind of stuff that they thought he should be doing. And it creates this tension within the community. And the reason why is because Israel was looking for a man of war just like the old days. He was looking for, they were looking for a king like David. The kind of guy who's gonna say, all right, we're gonna take over Rome. We're not gonna let them occupy our land anymore. This is God's land and we're gonna take it back. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he's, he's not like a man of war. He's not raising an army. He's doing something different. And he creates this tension within the community because he's challenging all of the community in a very, very uncomfortable way. And when we get to Matthew chapter, chapter 11, we see how uncomfortable this is with this guy named John the Baptist. Now we knew, we heard about John the Baptist earlier in Matthew, and we we're going through the first couple chapters. He was the guy who baptized Jesus. 
And man, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt Jesus was the guy. He's the guy we've been waiting for. Because when Jesus starts coming down to the pond to get baptized down the Jordan River, he calls out. He's like, hey, behold, everybody, eyes off of me, eyes off on him. Look over here. That's the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the dude. We've been waiting for this guy, and now he's here. So John the Baptist, he knew who Jesus was. But from the moment that Jesus stepped into the water and says, John, I need you to baptize me, it is clear that John's understanding of how the Savior was going to do his work was a little murky. Because Jesus says, baptize me. And John's like, uh, I think you need to baptize me. From the first conversation that we see between the two of them, we see that John is having a hard time understanding how Jesus is going to fulfill his work. So what happens is you've got all these things that Jesus is doing. You've got this guy named John the Baptist who baptized him. Well, after the baptism, we kind of, he falls off the pages of history. We don't really see him from too much. And then he picks up here in chapter 11. And just a little background before we get into it. What had happened in chapter 11 before we get into this is that after John baptized Jesus, he went on continuing to preach. But the king at the time in Israel, this guy named Herod, who had a couple brothers, the king Herod went to go visit one of his brothers over in Rome. So Herod the king went to go visit his brother in Rome, and while he's there, he falls in love with his brother's wife. The problem is that Herod is also married right now. So when he falls in love with his, his brother's wife, he comes back to Jerusalem, and he convinces his, his, uh, his uh, basically his sister-in-law, to divorce his brother and come marry him. So it works, she divorces her brother, his brother, she comes to Jerusalem, she, uh, he divorces his wife, and the two of them marry. Well, this didn't go over so well with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, here's, oh, this is like public news, everybody knows what's going on. John the Baptist stands up and speaks against Herod and basically says what he's saying, what he's doing is sin, you need to repent. You can't break up two marriages to get what you want. That's sin, you don't, you, that's not how this works. So what does Herod do? He throws John the Baptist in prison. So at this point in, in, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is sitting in prison because of what he said about Herod's marriage. And John is hearing from his disciples the stuff Jesus is up to. Now just a couple chapters ago, we saw that John's disciples went to a party that Matthew had thrown after Matthew the tax collector got saved and became a disciple of Jesus and invited Jesus and Jesus and his disciples are at Matthew's party and the Pharisees are there asking questions and, uh, and all kinds of wild stuff is happening at the party. People are, are drinking. There's sinners there. And John the Baptist's disciples show up and say, hey, can we ask you a question? Why aren't you guys fasting? That's kind of what we do. We're the set-apart folks. And if John anointed you and baptized you, I'm, I'm assuming that you would kind of follow in line with the way he does ministry. So how come you guys aren't, aren't fasting? Well, eventually, the word of what Jesus was doing and the word from John's disciples get back to John and John starts struggling because what's happening is John's expectations of what he thought Jesus was going to do and how he was going to do it are not lining up. In John's mind, John's sitting back like, man, why is the, why is the, why is the Lamb of God spending all this time with tax collectors? And I know Herod's an imposter king. I'm calling him out. If Jesus is the rightful king, how come he's not taking him on? Why does Jesus have this reputation for doing all these things differently than I would? 
Are you, are you really the one? Did I make a mistake? Because you're not doing things the way that I would do them. Which is interesting because that's essentially the same posture that our heart takes on most days. I'll go ahead and let you know, Jesus is never gonna do things the way that you would do them. And that's good, because if he did, most of us wouldn't be sitting in this room. So with that in mind, now that John is sitting in prison, we know why. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11, let's read verses one through six. Matthew 11, one says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Well, John, you're the one who told us that he's the one. So, so now you've got doubts. Why do you have doubts? Because I'm hearing the deeds of the Christ and now I've got questions. Verse four, and Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Pause right there. So verse two, when John hears, while he's in prison, the deeds of Jesus, he sends questions. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to put yourself in John's shoes for a moment, all right? You're the guy who's sitting there in prison because you were standing up to tyranny. You saw sin, you called it out, you did the righteous thing, and now you're suffering for it. And the guy who is supposed to be bringing an end to all of this, you find out that he is not um, publicly endorsing fasting. That he's not teaching his disciples to do things the way that you would do them. Can you sense the tension that that would create? The idea that you are self-righteous in your own mind doing, you know this is what God would want. And then you see God not doing what you think he would want. How do you reconcile that? Because what that does is it creates inside of us doubt. And to most church people, that's a dangerous word. Doubter, you don't, you don't, you don't wanna doubt. Well, in just a few verses, uh, I think we jump down to verse 11, we're told by Jesus' own mouth that John was the greatest person ever to be born of women. So, I submit to you that if the greatest person who was ever born of women struggled with doubt, then you are in good company. It is not the thing that you should run from or be ashamed of or sit on and pretend doesn't exist. When doubt begins to bubble to the surface, I would say, biblically, what you should do is exactly what John did, bring your doubt to Jesus. Now you've got an option. You could bring your doubt to your friends. You could bring your doubt to other people who doubt. You could bring your doubt to a podcast. You could bring your doubt to some book that somebody recommended to you. And what will happen is you'll kind of just sit and stew in your doubt, and more doubt will be tossed on top of it. And you'll never actually get to a place where you're learning any truth or growing. You're just growing and growing in more doubt, which is the opposite of what God wants you to do, which is grow in faith. So what we should do if we're following John's example is not pretend like doubt doesn't exist, but address it when it comes up, and that means we should bring it to Jesus. 
So when we start struggling with doubt, we bring it to the Lord. And Matthew shows us that when this happens, when we bring it to Jesus, just like John did, for us, this looks very similar. Now, we don't have Jesus. You can't go like knock on his door right now, but you can go to him in prayer. You can go to him in scripture. And that's the beauty of what Jesus gave us in the Holy Spirit when he rose from the dead. We have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us as believers that lead us and guide us into all truth. So when you struggle with doubt, go to the Lord in prayer about the doubt and ask him to address it. And you know where he addresses it most often? In the scripture, in his word. Why? Because this word, this Bible right here, is what God decided to reveal to mankind about himself. This is what God says about himself to us. And it's filled with things like, look, when you approach me, this is how I want you to approach me. Because we would assume, okay, well, if we know that you are holy and you are you know, completely set apart, then I should kind of maybe not approach you too often. I, I shouldn't bring some of these things before you because that doesn't seem like it's worth your time. Well, that's the opposite of what God chose to reveal about himself when Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, our Father, our Dad, you come to him with everything. He's your dad. He's not some boss who's mad at you because you didn't do good on some uh, test or some job. He's your father. He loves you. He knew you weren't going to do good on that test. Don't hide it. Don't pretend to sign his name and turn it in like he's okay with it. Run to him when you know that you failed. That's what he wants. And so this idea that we should um, hide uh, doubt or, or, or be uncomfortable with the things of God when we read a scripture like, well, I don't really know what that means. That's okay that you don't know what it means. That's normal. It's normal to sit in a service and hear the word of God taught and say, well, that doesn't really jive with what I've heard. Now I've kind of got a crisis. I've got to decide do I listen and embrace this new understanding of something or do I just cling to my old ways that I can't defend and I'm not really sure how I got there, but somebody that I looked up to taught me that and I'm gonna stick to that. Look, every time, without, it doesn't matter who taught you. I don't, I don't, I don't matter, it doesn't matter if I taught you that and you're like, man, I look up to most things you say, I'll listen to it. It doesn't matter. I'm not the final authority on anything. All right, I'm not an apostle. I don't carry, my words don't carry the same weight as Jesus and his disciples, okay? When I stand up here on Sunday morning, guess what I'm doing? All I'm doing is reading their words. I'm not standing up here without a Bible and saying, here, here's some things about God you guys should, should consider. No, everything is rooted and grounded in this. This is what we go to. So when you're struggling with doubt, this is where you go. And here's the beauty of it. When John did this to Jesus, what did Jesus do? Jesus pointed John to the scriptures. That's what the beauty of this is. And if you're reading it too quick, you might miss it because what happens here is when he responds in verse four, he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. When he goes to verse five, what he's saying is, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Why does that sound familiar? Because in Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, when Isaiah the prophet was prophesying 700 years before Jesus showed up on the scene, hey, when Jesus shows up, when the king is here, he's gonna do these kinds of things. Jesus is telling John, hey, I'm gonna answer your doubt with scripture. 
This isn't something new that I'm just pulling out of thin air. This was talked about 700 years ago. What I'm doing is exactly what Isaiah said I would be doing when I'm here. So I understand that you're struggling with some of the things that I'm doing and some of the ways that I'm doing, but you gotta understand this has been going on for a long time. Everything I'm doing is exactly what was supposed to happen. So it may not be what you want or how you want it or with the people that you want it, but man, this is what's happening. The freight train's rolling whether you want to or not, which is tough because in our families, when it comes to church, when it comes to family, <clears throat> a lot of times people in our families or people who are close to us or our friends are gonna let us down. In our self-righteousness, we will stand up and say, well, that is it. I am, I'm, I'm done with this, I'm done with that, I'm not standing up for this. And then about a year passes and you see and you start hearing that the Lord's working on their heart and they're starting to come to a little repentance. And you're like, Lord, this whole time I've been faithful. I've been coming to church every single week. I haven't missed a beat. I still pray. And this person over here, they did this and they did this and they did this. And isn't that offensive? And now, and now they think they're gonna show up? I've been in church my entire life, and now this person who, who, who I can't stand, who did these evil business dealings to me, now they're showing up to church. How am I supposed to deal with that? How am I supposed to handle the fact that you're doing things in people that I don't like? You're clearly moving. I can see your fingerprints. I don't like it, but I can see your fingerprints on people I can't stand. Their personality drives me nuts. I don't like it. What are you gonna do? Do you need to have things your way? Or can your will bend to the fact that the Lord is changing people even though you don't like them? And the reality that eventually maybe because of what God does is you might actually start liking them because God changes your heart, gives you new desires, and you don't see people the way that you used to. So John brings this to Jesus and Jesus points him right back to scriptures. He says, look, I, I'm regularly gonna do things that are different than what you think. So the only encouragement I could give you is, buddy, don't be offended by me. And the faster that we can digest this and be okay with it, the better off we're gonna be. There's a thing inside church people that makes us convinced that whatever we like is what God likes, right? If God were to walk the earth today, he'd probably listen to country music, because I like country music. I don't like country music, I'm just using that as an example. <laughs> if God were to show up to church, he wouldn't like some of those songs we sang. Why? Because you don't like them. I, mean, I got news for you. God doesn't like the things that you like. God wants you to like the things that he likes. And that makes us very uncomfortable because the scriptures are filled with commands we don't like obeying. Filled with them. There's so many examples of things that the scripture is pretty clear. Hey, my people, we do things this way. Well, I don't really like it that way, so I'm not gonna do it. God didn't stop doing specific things because you were uncomfortable with them. He's gonna do them anyway and he's gonna ask you to be okay with it because he wants you to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. He doesn't want to change 
The eternal God doesn't want to change so that he starts loving the things that you love and hating the things that you hate. Our hearts are what change. And that's what Jesus is telling John. Look, I know when you got your mind, the way ministry's supposed to work, I get it, I understand. But you gotta know, buddy, I'm not doing things the way you would. As a matter of fact, your entire ministry model, everything that, that has happened up to this point, the whole, from Moses all the way to the prophets up through you, you're the last of a kind. There's no more shouting from the rooftops. Prepare the way, because he's coming. There's no more of that. Why? Because he's already here. He's here. We don't need Old Testament prophets in the way that we did before, shouting or proclaiming, get ready, he's coming. He's going to heal the sick. John was the last of that. Why? Because Jesus is here. And we don't need people telling us he's going to do it because Jesus is here among us doing it right now. And so Jesus says, look, I need you to not be offended by the way that I choose to do things. I need you to be okay with the way that I do things because in the way that I do things, I'm fulfilling scripture. Now let's pick it up in verse seven. Because as soon as the disciples walk away, Jesus turns to the crowd. Verse seven, it says, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, what did what'd you go out to see then? A man dressed in soft clothing? I mean, John, behold, those who wear soft clothing, they're, they're in king's houses. You have to go to the, to the desert to see somebody in soft clothing. So why did you go out to see him? What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, John is even more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting Malachi, the prophecy that Elijah would show up before the coming of the, of the king. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is now greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law of the prophets prophesied until John. So everything that's, that's been going on, it's a foreshadowing. Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. That's the message of the prophets, to prepare the people for the king who's coming, right up until John. And if you're willing to accept that he's the Elijah who is to come, the one referenced in Malachi, he's it, he's the guy you've been waiting on. Every year at Passover, the Jewish families would gather around and start celebrating Jewish Passover. Passover. And you know what they would do? They would leave an empty seat at the table for Elijah. They'd leave a cup of wine on the table for Elijah. Why? Because they, they, in faith, they're saying, man, he's coming. <clears throat> and when Elijah shows up, and he might show up here at our table, we've got to have a place ready for him. Because when he shows up, that's the sign that the, the Messiah is coming. The King is coming. Jesus the one, he'll be here, but we're waiting for this sign first. And Jesus saying, hey, if you're willing to accept it, John was that sign. He was the Elijah figure. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to their friends, their playmates. Hey, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you, you didn't mourn. Look, John came neither eating or drinking, and they said, ah, he is a demon. 
I mean, he lived a straight-edge life. He never ate, never drank, probably a Nazarite. Weird dude wearing weird clothes, eating weird stuff out in the middle of the desert, baptizing people in a dirty Jordan River. And you guys say he has a demon. And then the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, look, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. In, the, in Luke's account of this, he says, wisdom is justified by her children. And I think that's an interesting way of reading it because in this section, Matthew is referencing what Jesus said about this generation basically being children sitting in the marketplace. So as soon as John the Baptist walks away, Jesus turns to the crowd with a question. Look, let me ask you guys, why did you go out into the wilderness? What were you going to see? And eventually he answers a question by saying, look, I know what you went to go see. You went to go see a prophet. So he starts this logic here that we've kind of got to follow in order to get to what Jesus is talking about. So he turns to the crowd and he says, why did you go see John? And, there, and, and the, the ultimate conclusion is they went to go see him, he was a prophet. Okay, so if we all agree as a crowd that John was a prophet, then we have to also agree that the prophet speaks things of God and we have to follow what he says, right? I'm like, yeah, I get that. So if John's a prophet and John said, behold the Lamb of God, and proclaimed Jesus, what, me, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the one, I'm the one you've been waiting for, that you then have to affirm if you follow John's ministry and you believe him that he's a prophet, you have to follow what he says and what he says is, I'm the one. So what's interesting here is Jesus starts talking to the crowd about John, but ultimately it's not really about John. He's talking to the crowd about himself. And what he's saying is, if you believe what John had to say, then you have to believe what he had to say about me, and that means you're gonna have to make a decision about me. You can't just say, I'm all about this side of God. Like I really like when he talks about stuff like repentance and sin and turning and bad people and they're gonna get what they like because I'm on the inside and they're on the outside and I like that clear line. You know, I, that, that makes sense to me. Well, that makes sense, but what happens when Jesus starts standing up and saying, hey, um, what I'm looking for in my people are peacemakers. Well, uh, hold on a second. I mean, I, I thought we were like, I thought we were making war over here. I thought my mission in life is to, you know, my spiritual gift is to make people upset and to call them out on their stuff. I, I didn't know that I was supposed to be a peacemaker. I didn't know I was supposed to be, you know, uh, walking in, in meekness. I don't know I was supposed to be, you know, spiritually poor, coming to the Lord for all of my needs. I mean, I thought I was supposed to be, um, you know, filled with the righteousness of God and making sure that all the stuff that God needed to be done was gonna be accomplished through me. And, and, that, and that God couldn't do anything without me. He needs me. He can't accomplish his plans without me. And then Jesus shows up and he's like, look, man, if you believed what's written, Essentially what you're saying is, I don't need you. I take great joy in using you and working through you and inviting you, but if you say no, guess what? Kingdom's rolling on. I'm still building my kingdom whether you say yes or no. I want to include you, but I don't need you. That was Paul's argument in Acts. We don't serve a God who needs human hands 
who says, oh, I can't do anything without these people accomplishing things. That's not who our God is. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need us, but he takes great joy in using us. And so what Jesus is saying to the crowd is if you believe John's message, you have to accept Jesus. John was the greatest guy who was ever born of women. And he's the kind of guy who was in a long line of prophets preparing the way for Jesus. John was in fact the Elijah figure you were supposed to be waiting on. Everything has been set right in front of you. And you have to make a choice about what you're gonna believe about what John proclaimed. Uh, Before I even say Jesus, before Jesus even says anything about himself, he's got prophets saying things about him for him. So the crowd has to make a decision. What am I gonna do with Jesus? Am I gonna be okay with the weird ways that he's doing stuff because that's not how I would do things? Can I repent and turn from my desire to wanna build God's kingdom the way I want to and let God build his kingdom the way he wants to through me? That's the crisis. Because you wanna do things your way, but God doesn't wanna do things your way. Jesus says, all of this is before you. It's been before you for years. Prophets have been speaking it. And what are you like? What is this generation like? It's like a bunch of children sitting around in the marketplace saying things like, hey man, we sang songs for you. You didn't dance. We played sad songs. Like you're not doing what we want you to do. God, you're not following us. They're looking at each other and saying, yeah, we, we did these things. We tried to stir your emotions and you weren't on board with it. We had our way of wanting to do things, but you weren't, is, you, you weren't interested in them. God is fulfilling his word, but, but, but we're calling him a glutton. We've got our way that we want to work. We do things the way, we've got our church services. We structure things the way we want and we put all this emphasis and this money into production and then we have a service and we sit back and we're like, well, that just wasn't that great. Maybe we need to spend more money. Maybe we need up the production a little more. Has anybody ever considered maybe we should up prayer? Maybe we spend some more time in prayer before the service. Maybe we spend more time asking God to show up and move among his people because if he doesn't, it doesn't matter how much money we spend on the building or the sound or the instruments or how many people we pay to show up to watch the children or how great the production is, he's not going to move. We're convinced that we can put a proper budget in place that will generate a move of God. We just gotta do the right things and organize stuff the right way. That's not how any of this works. That's not found anywhere in here. What is found in here is a bunch of broken people on their knees, weeping, crying out to God, saying, look, unless you show up, we got nothing. You don't see Elijah taking on the prophets of Baal, dumping a bunch of water on the altar and saying, all right guys, watch this. I just invented a lighter. It's gonna blow your mind. Watch this. No, he dumps the water after he's been mocking the the prophets of Baal all day long. He gets down on his knees and he says, all right God, now you gotta come through. He's not saying, God, you have to come through because look how much we spent on the budget. Look how much we invested in this offering. You gotta show up. No, he's saying, God, if you don't show up, your name's on the line and there's nothing else I can do. You have to answer by fire. This is where we are as a people. 
We can't sing enough songs, we can't conjure enough services to stir up the presence of God and con him into moving and changing our hearts. All we've got is dependency on him, coming before him saying, Lord, you're the one, you're it, you're it. If you choose not to do this, I'm, I'm, I'm broken. You've gotta come through, because on my best day, I can't even come through the way that you can come through. Wisdom is justified by her deeds or by her children. He's saying, look, this generation thinks they're wise, but look at their deeds. This generation thinks they've responded to God in the proper way, but look at what they're doing. John told you, Jesus is among you, but you're refusing to repent and follow him. Therefore, woe to the cities that are visited by Jesus and rejected him. You've got all this in front of you. You've had it for years. And all you want to do is play games. All you want to do is spend money. All you want to do is point fingers. You've got Jesus in your midst and you're rejecting him because you'd rather have your programs and your processes and your organizations. Woe to you. Now I'm gonna read something that's very heavy. So I just want you to prepare your hearts for it because this is not light reading. This is not the kind of thing that you expect to hear when you show up to church on Sunday morning. Right, we're gonna read a series of woe to yous. That's not good news, that's bad news. Because if you're on the wrong side of the woe, woe to you, eternally. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. And then he began to denounce the cities who were most, where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Those are really heavy words. Why are they heavy words? Well, they're heavy words just because the reality of what they're rejecting is starting to set in. But they're heavy words because these were all towns around the Sea of Galilee, which is Jesus, was where Jesus grew up. It's around where he was doing his ministry. These are the towns where Jesus performed miracles, taught messages, healed people, this is the towns where he grew up and bought bread from local bakeries. He knew these people by name. And these people were so close to Jesus. Jesus came into this bakery and bought bread from this guy. And this guy's like, eh, that's not the son of God, that's Jesus. I remember when he was born. I know his brothers, I know his family. That guy can't be the son of God. I'm too familiar with him. Woe to you who become so familiar with the things of God that you miss the things of God. That's what's on the line. They were so close to Jesus that they rejected him as king because he became common. Just a normal, regular guy. This reminds me of Hebrews 6. 
I didn't put this on the screen, so I don't want you to follow along. I just want you to hear these words. The writer of Hebrews, chapter six, verses four through eight. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about people who were saved and then lost their salvation? That's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He's talking about church people who spend so much of their time in the proximity of the things of God, but never make a decision to turn from their sin and actually embrace God. All right, listen to what he says. I'll go it again. For it is impossible in the case, what case? In the case of those who have, who have once been enlightened. Have once been saved, redeemed by the Lamb? No. Have once been enlightened. Their eyes have been opened. They start seeing things differently because Holy Spirit is opening their eyes or because they've got friends who are believers and they're starting to see things a little bit differently. In the case of those people who have been enlightened and have started to taste the heavenly gift because they come to church every single week, they hear the worship, they hear the teaching of the word, they share in the Holy Spirit. Maybe they go to somebody's home group and they're close to community and they're seeing the beauty of what, of what the transformation of God can do. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then they fall away. They don't want anything to do with the church to restore them once again to repentance. Why? Because they're crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And here's, he uses an illustration. You want me to explain what I'm talking about here? He says, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, one produces a crop useful to those whose sake is excuse me, cultivated, receives a blessing from God. So when the rain comes down from heaven, sometimes it falls on land and it produces a crop. Lots of fruit, right? But sometimes the same rain that falls from heaven falls on the ground and all it does is not produce fruit, it produces thorns and thistles, which is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So you're telling me, I don't like this, Lord, but you're telling me that it is possible to spend a majority of my life in proximity to good church people and church and your kingdom and never actually repent or turn from any of my sin and lie to myself about where I stand with you so that one day when I stand before you and call you Lord, you're gonna look at me and say, depart from me, I never knew you? That's exactly what he's saying. It is a dangerous thing to surround yourself with God's kingdom. Listen to good Bible teaching. Sing the songs of God's goodness. Surround yourself with the benefits of what you find in here, but never truly obey it. To hear it and never respond to it, to never obey it, that is dangerous. Woe to the folks who surround themselves with church, but never surrender and obey Jesus. Woe to the men who are dragged to church by their wives, but don't treasure Jesus. Woe to the teenagers who are surrounded by God's working, but say, tomorrow 
I'll live for Jesus. Woe to the mothers who feel like their only call is to serve their children but neglect their God. The reality that Jesus is saying to these cities should sink deep into us because it is a dangerous thing for us to get close and handle the things of God but never obey what we hear him say. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. So come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, man, aren't those pretty verses if we just take them out of context? Man, I can just stand up here and preach a whole sermon on how lowly and wonderful and just, man, all you got to do is come. But those verses follow something very heavy that we have to read within context. The weight of playing around with the things of God should sit heavy on our hearts. But what do we do with that heaviness? Do we sit on it and turn to depression? Do we sit on it and turn to anxiety? That, oh, maybe I'm counted among the ones who, who, who are, are making light of the things of God, who, who, who are turning the things of God, the kingdom of God, into a business. Maybe I'm counted among them. Do you sit and just wring your hands? No, the invitation is when the weight of that reality sets on you, you run to Jesus. And what do you find when you get there? That he is willing to yoke himself with you so that the burden and the weight of that is immediately lifted. Because now you start understanding that all the religious things that you felt like you had to fulfill in order to be right with God, they're not necessary. They're not necessary for you to be right with God. Everything that needed to be done in order for you to be right before a God, satisfy the wrath of God against you, has already been fulfilled and done by Jesus. The weight of I've got to please God is lifted off of you and replaced with a light burden of being able to do those exact same things, not to get approval, but because you already have approval. So I'm not standing here saying we shouldn't come to church. I'm standing here saying you shouldn't come to church because you need to check off some religious box. You should come to church and gather among the saints because you get to come to church and gather among the saints. You shouldn't sing because we're telling you. You get to sing. You're, you should sing because you get to. Because you got a mouth, you got a voice. You can use it to glorify Jesus. You shouldn't read your Bible because you feel like you've got to. There's this weight on you. I'm a Christian. I have to. No, you get to read this is because this is what He chose to reveal to His children about Himself. And if you want to learn about Dad, this is the place you start. You don't have to pray. You get to pray. You don't have to serve other people. You get to. You don't have to evangelize. You get to share the goodness of Jesus with other people. 
All these things stop being stuff we have to do to fulfill some quota, and all they, all, they become some reflection of who we are because the burden is not a burden. It's completely transformed. So, the last thing I want to leave us with, besides the idea of Jesus inviting us to take on this yoke, is the way he frames it out. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father. So here's the invitation. Come to me all who are labor and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Bring that weight to me and I'll give you rest. But you have to come to me. There are not nine ways to get to God. There are not 14 different religions that will lead you to God. There is only one man, and his name is Jesus. And if he is not the one you're running to, then it is not God you're running to. This is as clear as it can possibly be. There is only one way to have your burdens lifted. There is only one way to experience eternal life. And that seems pretty exclusive, and you'd be right. It is, it's very exclusive. There are not 19 ways. There is only one way, and if you hear him call your name and you respond and you run to him and he lifts your burdens, I promise, the joy that you will experience cannot be put into words on this stage right now from my mouth. But the pain and the suffering that will come as a result of spending your time playing around with the things of God and going to church because you feel like you have to and checking off some religious boxes being so close to Jesus but never obeying him. In the day of judgment, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah will have a better defense than you. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.